everyone. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Welcome to stalking. Sorry. You know, we make so many movies and TV shows and characters and all. we we as a society mm-hmm. are really obsessed with not obsessed with stalking. But I think it's one of the scariest things to imagine really is totally. to be followed in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And it's much more common than people think. It's very common and we see it play out in almost all the horror movies. So I get how we're obsessed with it. I think that our horror movies are, is a way that we're obsessed with oh, it. Oh, sure. You know, it's if, a representation, it's a mythology around it. Yeah. I mean, if you think of early horror, especially slasher films, and you think uh, we've talked at length intermittently about Giallo on the show and how that was a little bit of a foreshadow to what our American slashers and Canadian sna- slashers would become and how the, the lens, you know, was always of that, of the kit, like, you know, the vantage point was of the killer and the killer was usually stalking and stalking yeah. a woman and how threatening and vulnerable and crazy making stalking is. And yeah. I think it's also important for people to recognize that stalking as a behavior isn't equivalent to stalking as a crime. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what I mean by that is there has to be a level of credible threat, which I'll talk about once I actually introduce what stalking is, Okay. which makes it really hard to qualify mm. and why so many people either die or become really physically harmed at the hands of their stalker, mm-hmm. which 75% of the time, they know their stalker. Yeah. Okay? So when we see these films of this random stranger stalking someone, that's not usually how this goes down unless, unless we are talking about somebody who might be more pathological or mentally ill and they develop something called Clarembault or, or erotomania, which I'll talk about that in a moment, which leads to delusions of grandeur and delusions that they may actually be in a relationship. This happens with celebrity stalking cases. Mm -hmm. So we've seen this with, you know, Madonna, Gwyneth Paltrow, a lot of these guys, um, Keanu Reeves, a lot of them. So recently Ryan Gosling, Ryan Gosling. So yeah, it happens to, to, to all, all genders. Mm -hmm. And that is very different from what we'll be talking about today. And, and, um, and I'm going to break this down for you in a moment here. So first of all, like what, you know, what does it mean to stalk? So to pursue, harass, or persecute someone with unwanted attention or unwanted obsessive attention. So this is someone who is very persistent to the point of it becoming incredibly dangerous and problematic. You know, we look at old 1950s movies and we think about persistence being this charming thing. And we, we've, in, in our more evolved culture, you know, we've even paid attention to music and things that allude to it's not all that charming when someone is forced to doing something when they've said, hey, I'd rather not. It's called consensual. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, a lot of times we look at persistence or someone who is, you know, can't, can't blame a guy for trying kind of thing. Oh, boy. <laughs> Right. Boys will be boys. It's like, okay, well, yes, but a woman will also be a woman and say fucking no. (laughs) But I do blame you for trying. Pepe Le Pew. (laughs) Take the sexual harassment training at work. (laughs) Right. So persistence, folks, persistence is actually, I wouldn't say that it's equivalent, but I would certainly say that it's correlated 
to emotional or physical violence when someone is overly persistent in a way. So if you're dating someone and you're like, hey, no, I, I can't see you tonight. Uh, I'm going out with some friends. And then you say you're going to this restaurant and this person shows up and says, well, they just couldn't stop thinking about you. Uh-huh. Okay. That level of persistence isn't fucking charming. No. It's psychotic. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the fact that that is what stalking is. We're going to eventually move into a more common form that is very much under the radar and actually creates a lot of trouble for most often cis women in court cases where they are going through a disillusion of marriage or a custody battle where they have to be very careful in how much they allude to this or declare this because oftentimes it'll be held against them and they'll be called paranoid when they are a victim of or a target of what we call technology-enabled coercive control. And I will describe to you what that means. This is very different from your celebrity stalker, okay? I'm going to go back for a moment. We're going to talk about, real briefly, who we aren't going to focus on today, but at the same time might be what you are more familiar with as an audience based on the fact that most of our documentaries and most of our horror films are based on these folks, so erotomania was first described by uh, Gigi Clarenbolt, which in 1885, and it's also called Clarenbolt syndrome. Erotomania is when a person believes that another person, usually of higher status, is in love with them. This is where we get these celebrity right. things from, right? So celebrity stalker cases can be rooted in delusions or psychopathy or both, right? So there might be a level of psychopathy, sociopathy, narcissism, but then it's also typically in conjunction with some sort of delusional disorder as well. The syndrome states that it's more common in women, but I would disagree with that Mm. because we see a lot of male stalkers towards female celebrities. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that a lot of that research comes off the heels of like women and hysteria and all this bullshit that we've really moved somewhat away from. Um, and I also think that we just tend to view women through more of a paranoid lens than we do men. Men, we might look at as more physically violent or aggressive, which is not always seen as bad mm-hmm. as paranoia, which is deemed as hysterical and crazy, right? Gotcha. So it's paranoid in nature. Um, the person develops um, an affection for this person, the, the inability to, they might believe. So for example, if if it is a female who's experiencing this, she may believe that there's an inability to escape the clutches of this person. Um, and they believe that this, you know, very, I don't know, profound person in society, celebrity, whatever, political figure is actually pursuing them. And they just don't know how, what to do with that. Right. right. So very histrionic. So that is what that is. We're really not going to be talking about that so much today, which is more of like the mental illness piece We're going to be talking about stalking today more from a place of personality disorder, but more specifically how that leads into domestic violence and what we would call predatory or obsessive. And that delusions are typically absent in these cases, right? Okay. So let's talk about, I want to bring up seven notorious stalkers. Oh, don't bring up my stalker. Okay. Come on. I left yours out because okay. I didn't want to get too personal. I mean, they're notorious. Yeah. But they never stop. Never stop pursuing me. Yes. So the first one is 
Robert John Bardo. So there was a, uh, a sitcom back in the 80s called My Sister Kate. I think that's what it was called. Mm-hmm. And Rebecca Schaefer was uh, on that show. And this guy actually found her apartment in the San Fernando Valley and showed up mid-morning and shot her. Yeah, that was so famous. That was a very, time. very famous, notorious case. The next one that most people know is John Hinckley Jr., who shot President Reagan to impress Jodie Foster. Also very famous. Yeah. And in fact, his case was one of those that really started the, um, to concentrate more about the insanity plea. I believe he did get the insanity plea, but after his case, they started to look at um, how maybe that should not have been the case. I'll correct myself if I'm wrong, but I believe that he, he did get insanity on that. Okay. The third would be Jamie Calloway, known as Jamie Godhead Platinum, arrested in 2012 for stalking a female correction officer. Number four, Luis Placencia. He, this is where we start to see some of the cyber stalking starting. He cyber stalked a model through Facebook and email by the name of Courtney Ruppert. In 2009, we have Robert O'Ryan, who stalked Olympic gold medal winning gymnast Sean Johnson by driving mm. from Florida to California because he had a message for her. Oh boy. Was that message tied to a gun? Probably. <sighs> Number six, six. Well, and sick. Pradeep Manukanda, I might be saying that wrong, who stalked Mark Zuckerberg. Mm. And the last one, number seven, Margaret Mary Ray stalked David Letterman. She did have schizophrenia and thought he was her husband. So you can see that the majority of these notorious cases, why people believe that stalking is usually associated with mental illness is because the most notorious cases oftentimes involve very delusional folks. Yeah, and I did look up John Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity. There you go. And so after his case, the insanity plea, we opened it up and started to look at what, how should we really qualify insanity because a lot of people believe that he got that a little bit too easy, easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know now we look at statistics for insanity and it's less than 1% of folks who file for it actually or um, actually will get it. So right. it's not as high as, as people think. They crack down. So outside of the, f- the framework of mental illness, we think about how it's really rooted in domestic violence and coercive control and how these become the central force, like with regard to stalking behavior. And I was mentioning earlier on um, in the start of the episode, what we know about stalking laws is they are set more to protect the perpetrator than they are to protect the victim. Now, a lot of people will disagree with that, especially folks in law enforcement. You know, they'll say things like, well, we can't just arrest someone because, you know, someone's saying that they're stalking them. Right. But there has to be like multiple attempts and paper trails of someone calling and saying I'm being stalked and there be some sort of physical evidence I was around say, this. There always has to be some kind of physical boundary violation. Yes. As opposed to emotional, psychological, right. Verbal <laughs> intentions. Yeah. All that. And what we, and I'll get into this in a bit, but what we know about most of these folks who aren't mentally ill, who are characterologically disordered and violent that they know exactly how to stay right beneath the line, mm-hmm. that threshold of severity that would 
po- that would cause law enforcement to make an arrest or something. I think that's the sweet spot of their high. Yes. From it. This because, is where the crazy making happens. Yeah. So what does it what does it do is it enables them to do this for periods of time that could go on for decades. Awful. And this creates God, such crazy making in the victim that you actually have someone who becomes incredibly symptomatic, diagnosed with all sorts of shit like borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, delusional disorder, because they can't prove it. Ugh. Okay? So this, this is, I'll tell you folks, this is 90% of the cases I'm on. So much that I have to coach my clients in saying, as, as you know, when I'm on a case where I'm consulting, if I'm an expert, I'm not having these conversations. I'm, I'm talking right. more to the attorneys, right? Yep. But when I'm on cases that I'm, I'm serving as a consultant to help them prep to go into the shit, I will literally say, I believe you. Don't say that. Okay. Yeah, of course. You cannot go in there and say that unless you can prove it. Right. So imagine how invalidating and how much that just perpetuates their trauma. So back to the law. Yeah. I think there's been a major overcorrection regarding not wanting to accuse someone out of inconveniencing them versus just being thorough and forewarning toward anyone who's been accused of stalking an alleged victim. So when we think about, um, I can only speak for our state here in California. In California, stalking can be charged as a misdemeanor or a felony. And a conviction carries a penalty up up to five years in jail or prison. I have never seen this. I was going to say, that's the max? <laughs> never seen this. Okay. <laughs> Most stalking laws require that the perpetrator make a credible threat of violence against the victim. Okay. Here lies the problem. There's no operational definition of credible threat. Okay. The key here is how evasive this, this term is. Because we have the word credible. Yeah. Victims are oftentimes looked at as non-credible. And I'm, I don't know this. Credible sounds like an ethical determination. 100%. Thank you. Not, a, not, there's not nothing a legal. legal there. <laughs> there's nothing legal there. And it's, it's left up to law enforcement or the court to qualify the credibility of the victim. Thus the trial that goes on forever. There was a case, I'm not going to mention the name just out of respect for this family. There was a case that happened over Christmas where a woman had contacted law enforcement and stated that her ex-husband was stalking her and her children. Law enforcement said, we can't do anything. There isn't enough proof there. He ended up coming in, murdering her and her children and himself the next day. Awful. This is, and folks, this is const- constantly happening yeah. in this country, okay? When we are dealing with domestic violence in relationships and marriages and other situations which intrusiveness might not be viewed as problematic, we still inherently live in a society where if a husband wants to fix his marriage and he's going to go in and tell her what's up and behind closed doors and they're fighting and whatever, we cannot qualify that as stalking because technically they're legally married, right? Just like we don't qualify rape 
in marriage because, well, if it's marriage, then can't he have it or she have it whenever they want it? Yeah. Okay. Same, yeah. same thing's Yikes. happening here. So credible threat. The fuck does that mean? It's the equivalent of saying it's bad. <laughs> yeah. Bad, which is an ethical judgment. Anything being good or bad is an ethical. It's, it's completely it's hilarious. So how so much of that kind of ethical language is in our legal system. Well, and you have to, if you also think about the fact that, and again, you know, I'm, when I say this, I don't want to come off as, you know, making all or nothing statements because I, I do very much appreciate law enforcement. They're very important in our society. I, I, so I don't like to make, you know, general statements, but we do know that the majority of law enforcement officers are cis males. Mm. Guys, it is a lot harder for you to imagine this level of power and control. So if it is left to a law enforcement officer who has never experienced it is male and doesn't live with that threat. And it is left up to him to decide whether it's credible. There lies a major problem. Yeah. Okay. We also know that it is very, very, very less than 5% of folks who allege this type of stuff who are actually lying. Okay. Okay. It's a very small percentage. That's a good statistic to know though. Telling you how these motherfuckers work. They work just below the radar. Like I was saying before, they, they start the crazy making. They create symptoms in their targets that look like mental illness. And these pieces of shit are really good at manipulating the court. I will also say that I've been on cases where the spouses who are the abusers are in law enforcement in military and they are protected by their systems. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, I want to be clear here. That doesn't mean that there isn't a place for law enforcement. It doesn't mean that all law enforcement is corrupt. It means that there are systems that will protect these people. Right. Okay. Take a break from that for a second because I have something <laughs> I'd like to do with you all right now. Let's, uh, yeah, okay. Do you want to play the song? <laughs> Stalking facts with girl. All right, we're in. We're entering levity. The levity of this. <laughs> okay, Shannon, are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. What is the most common type of stalking? And even if you don't know the term, you can just, you know. Well, I'm not going to know anything. So I'm just going to, yeah. Mm -hmm. Number two. Well, some of these you might know just from being a psychologist. What is considered central to the act and purpose of stalking? Okay. Number three. What age range is most at risk for being stalked? Got it. Number four. The predatory stalker is the most dangerous because they are not looking for a relationship or intimacy, but rather they are looking for blank. Okay. And number five, in most studies, about 30% of criminals commit violent acts. For stalkers, it's blank percent. <laughs> Uh, sorry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm just laughing because that would be inherent to who we studied. And you just went on and on about how we only study the violent ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
So what percent is the way? So you're yeah, if we're, if we're saying thirty percent of criminals who commit violent acts, mm-hmm. yep, thirty percent of them for stalkers, mm-hmm. how many of them go on to commit a violent act? Got it. Facts later. Those in the are show. some facts for you all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I want to talk a little bit here about, I'm going to briefly introduce what coercive control is because I've been using that term a lot. This is not going to be about coercive control, but stalking from a space of domestic violence essentially is a, a type of coercive control. So where did this term come from? It's actually, an, it's an amalgamation of quite a few clinicians, but a a licensed forensic social worker by the name of Dr. Evan Stark took a lot of these philosophies and created a whole new conceptual and legal framework. And so thankful for him and the work that he has done because what he's been able to do is pull this into the court system and make it more layman and palatable and just operational. So it's not just this like, evasive concept so we can have a conversation so we can have a conversation if we can't communicate about it that's right <laughs> that we're nowhere yeah coercive control is a new conceptual and legal framework for intergenerational progress in women's rights that frames male partner abuse as a crime against autonomy dignity equality and liberty now does that mean that men cannot be coercively controlled No, men can be, especially because we have to look at all different types of relationships. But if you're looking at the power and control wheel that is explicit for coercive control, one of the domains is male privilege. Mm. Because in society, coercive control is different from beating the physical crap out of someone. This is having certain privileges and certain access to things that may not be fully accessible to a female. Okay. Or, or not to the level that it's automatically accessible to male. Okay. But yes, of course, a man can be a, a victim or survivor of coercive control. Absolutely. And I'm talk about, talking about this in binary terms. So Stark's work focuses on the intricacies of patriarchal control, its influence on women's liberty, thereby creating a platform to discuss how dominance over women happens behind closed doors and outside the public eye. So here it is. And some of you who are clinicians, I want you to be really aware of this. There is, there are zero, zero, definitively zero psychological assessment tools that accurately assess for domestic violence. Okay. So when I am called to testify against an evaluation where they said, well, we did a, an assessment for DV. 99% of the time, when I ask that attorney to find that CV of that evaluator, they have zero background in domestic violence. Okay. And, <laughs> what? <laughs> and here, and here's the thing. The court doesn't know 
that domestic violence, in order to get licensed as a psychologist or a clinician of any kind, requires three units. That's it. One class. That's all. Then you can go into the field and say that you understand DV because you are a psychologist or you are a therapist. Mm -hmm. Domestic violence is a legal term. It's not a clinical term. So a lot of times how it's even being evaluated from a psychological level isn't fully, it, it's not demonstrating a real thorough historical assessment of this person. So Stark's work really focuses on gaining more of that. So he's changed the way that clinicians conceptualize DV, recognizing also that the macro system itself contributes to institutional control of women. So when we think about the court system, what is that? That's part of the macro system right? I've heard judges say, well, you got into this marriage. You asked for this. I've heard judges say, well, you decided to have children with them. Isn't this your fault? (laughs) Okay. Because judges are not required to have mental health training. Now that's changing. That's changing. But in the family court system, it's highly problematic. Okay. What are some of the central components of coercive control? It's unseen. Mm -hmm. Okay. How someone acts out there isn't how they act behind closed doors. This is why the mental illness piece is often absent. These people are very adept. There might be zero signs, if at all even present, of any physical evidence of abuse. Devaluation, subjugation, humiliation, ongoing oppression, limited access to protective factors. Shannon did an episode last week on Twin Flames, and we started to introduce the idea that what ends up happening is they pull them further and further away from their protective factors, right? Their loved ones, their access to finances and working, counseling. You're getting rid of your therapist. They're brainwashing you, Yeah. right? Or we're getting rid of our child's therapist because you have, there's a bias because they like you better. No, they just know you're a fucking abuser. Okay. (laughs) So here's one we're going to focus on constant threat and surveillance the way that we look at uh, coercive control is a threat or interference of someone's free will or liberty. When someone is being stalked through constant surveillance, the stalker doesn't even need to be present. Mm -mm. He can go back and watch it later. Mm -hmm. He can hack into your iCloud. Mm -hmm. He can hack into your child's iPad and see all of your text messages to your family, to your new partner, to your partners or to your children's therapist, whatever emails, Okay. Destroying the emotional or mental calm of the other party. It, it results in hijacking a person's independence through this level of surveillance. We know that 90% of DV survivors experience some form of this because we know that even folks who are physically abused, it always is in conjunction with emotional. It's not always true the other way. Emotional abuse, sometimes there's an absence of physical, but with physical There's not an absence of emotional. It always starts there. Mm. So it's a liberty crime. Cuomo and Dolce, researchers, discuss it as, Dr. Stark characterizes it as a liberty crime. It entraps people in abusive relationships. I see what you mean. It infringes on your liberty. Personally, in fact, in the legislation for the state of California, that is the statute. Okay. Is, you know, it's robbing somebody of their liberties. So the theory around surveillance, okay, 
what are some examples of what we call technology-enabled coercive control? So this is our remote forms of stalking, <laughs> unauthorized access to the to any sort of password, iCloud, anything. Oh, sure. Yeah. Using shared passwords on financial and personal accounts. I've had people say, I went into my account today and all my money's gone. Of course. Right? But they're legally married still. So the court goes, not my problem. Yeah, they can't. There can't isn't anything the court can do. Right? Tracking the person's whereabouts from a shared cell phone account or putting a GPS or tracker on their car. I've had clients say to me, I know he has cameras watching me. I need to tell the court. No, 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 you don't. No, you don't. Just going to seem paranoid. Yep. We're going to, we're going to work through that. (laughs) Um, Don't worry. We'll get there another way. (laughs) Using the child in some way, shape or form. So the child always gets triangulated Mm. into this, right? Always. Um, So it could be through communication. It could be through tracking something through their iPad or their phone. This is one that oftentimes gets discussed as complete and utter paranoia. Installing cameras in the victim's home or in the entrance of their house. This happens. Oh, yeah. I mean, or just hack into the ring camera. Or hack into the ring. Using a GPS system to track their partner's whereabouts. Removing money from shared accounts. Unauthorized access into social media apps and direct messaging. Stealing and reposting intimate photos of their victims. So that's another one that they'll use. so common. And then they'll go to court and the judge will say, well, I mean... You took the photo. Yeah, I mean, pretty consensual there. You look pretty happy there. What they don't know is the story before that. Right. And maybe how forced. And what was happening to get them to take the photo. That's exactly right. And either way, private photo. To go off this a little bit more, something that may start as consensual could end up being used against them. So it's stuff that maybe the, the client, the target knew about or even is in their own possession, it's of no shock or anything, but then the perpetrator utilizes that and weaponizes it. And so this, this if we're talking about like distribution of images, it's almost always part of a larger pattern of control mm. with distribution being just one, that's probably like the final act, right? Like Shannon was just saying, part of it could be just what they did to coerce that person into doing that to begin with. Maybe it was like, I'm not, um, I'm not feeling, I don't know if I, I, want my picture taken. Oh, come on. You know, I get lonely at work or, or give me something. You haven't been fucking me or whatever. Right. right? Exactly. And then the guilt and the shame and all that, or they'll, they'll pose some sort of threat. And that person has all of the money control yeah. over the family. Absolutely. When we think about stalking in modern day, it looks, although we still see this other form of stalking that happens, you know, the person that is having to look over their shoulder because that person's following them that, you know, This is more often what we now see because one, it takes less energy on the part of the target. Two, there isn't anything inherently illegal, especially if they're legally bound through marriage. And two and three, there isn't enough there for there to be a credible threat or quote unquote evidence, which means when the victim does speak up, believing that the system is going to go, oh my gosh, that's terrible the perpetuation of violence comes through the negligence of law enforcement, the court, the legal system, right. et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I throw this out to folks just so, you know, if, if you are in situations where you feel like this is happening to know that there are people out there who work in this field that will believe you and, and understand really how terrifying this can be. Because like I said, it, it, it can go, um, 
for years unending and my advice that I've I've worked with some with some clients is doing your best to create some sort of safety plan when you cannot shut it down because you don't have anyone backing you up. You may not even have family backing you up. Yeah, terrible. But it's this is real and this to me is more of the stalking that I see in my cases than some of this other stuff that we see you know more so because you know a better horror film is the right. erotomaniac. Right. Right. But this is this is more of the everyday stuff that's really, really terrifying. That's why I mean, not I mean, I'm saying that definitively, but I can imagine how that's one of the big reasons why it goes on for years and years and years and years. It can. And even way after the disillusion of marriage or the relationship is over. And we also know this. Shannon knows this as a clinician. When someone leaves these relationships, you know, it triples uh, the chance of that person being harmed by their stalker because it is really all about power and control. Yeah. If they feel that, that they are loosening the grip, that they don't have the grip anymore on you, it just escalates the behavior. And then that's why there's such a huge percentage of violence is because people ultimately almost always try to get away. Absolutely. And, and I don't ever want to give legal advice on this show, but I will say to always make sure if you are thinking about getting a restraining order to talk to someone first, because sometimes those can actually perpetuate, uh, they can actually have an opposite effect where the person then doubles, doubles down. Escalates and they are not going to respect the restraining order anyway. Exactly. Do you want some answers to some facts? Okay. No, no. Do you want some answers? I'm just kidding. I have nothing. I have no idea. I have some guesses. Okay, great. <laughs> what is the most common type of stalking? Now, internet stalking? Any of it. It could be in person. I mean, it's it really, this could either be in person or online. It's oh. just the, yeah. Uh, I kind of don't know what you mean by type. Um, well, think about like, what is a narcissist most threatened by? If you think about a relationship. Mm. Independence. <laughs> yeah, rejection, right? Rejection, From the so, shame. So just we call it simple obsessional. So this is usually ah. a male stalking his ex-wife or ex-partner. So the answer is obsessional. So it's called simple obsessional. Got it. Usually starts before the breakup. So the the rejection is the trigger, oh, and then yeah. they start to right up mm-hmm. the ante. They sure do. Number two, what is considered central to the act and purpose of stalking? Control. Yeah. To instill fear in the victim, essentially, through scary through control. Yeah. What age range is most at risk for stalking? 12 to 25. It, I don't know. You're not that far off. 12 it's, to 17. It's 18 to 24. 18 to 24. Leaving college students most at risk. Somewhere in there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Young people. Um, number four, the predatory stalker is the most dangerous because they are not looking for a relationship or intimacy, but rather they are looking for blank which we just said a moment ago. I was going to say control, yep. right? Power okay. and control through utilization of fear and violence. And then lastly, in most studies, about 30% of criminals commit violent acts. For stalkers, it's blank. Um, well, my guess that I wrote down was 75%. Over 50%. Okay. So the, again, this is, so we go back, just kind of leaving you all with this, we go back to how much our stalking laws fail to really protect because we know if someone is stalking and they continue to get away with it and they are persistent and if if law enforcement isn't doing anything then what does that leave the target to do that leaves the target to play nice to still have to interact Mm -hmm. and if you look at any 
research and threat assessment, they'll say that if you give a perpetrator any room to believe that communication can continue, they're going to become more persistent. So it actually creates more intense, it intensifies the stalking when law enforcement doesn't come in and say, hey man, we need to pause here and we're just going to ask you some questions versus we can't do anything about this because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, which feels counterintuitive to the victim, but... Yep. So there it is. Always with the light topics. <laughs> You're so fucking welcome. <laughs> Happy New Year. I don't know. Maybe we can do an episode coming up about helping people. So now we have sort of a basis and an understanding of what we're up against, right? Mm-hmm. And then I'd be curious around... You know, if you're in this situation, like you said, you give a lot of advice and a lot of counsel to a lot of people that are in this predicament and how to go about to have the best outcomes and be the safest Mm -hmm. they can be. And that would be a great follow up episode of your game. Yeah. I mean, it's really about how to build a credible case Mm -hmm. and how to present in a way that you are, you know, being transparent enough. You're not denying what's going on but how to best utilize this this type of stuff because court's all about evidence and well, it's hard to yeah. have evidence in this. Absolutely. And I would say like how to best use the system for your gain, for your betterment, for your safety to survive it, right? And the teaser for that would be whenever you can create a paper trail, even if they aren't going to believe you, every time you make a call, they have to record that. Right. Every time you say, now this happened, you know, keep a log yourself mm-hmm. of these events. Right. I have clients, I'm like, I don't care how obsessive it is. They're like, take a break from it, but yeah, of log course. it. Of course. So you have dates and you have times and you're just not making shit up. Well, and I think it also helps with the psychological process of right. reality. For sure. You know, obviously you're helping yourself legally, but you're also stepping yourself psychologically and metaphorically out of chaos and out of crazy making and into evidence, yeah, which really helps with the fog that's created by these kinds of relationships. For sure. I can see it being twofold. So that's tip number one. Yeah, there it is. All right. So hopefully we can follow up on that at a later date. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Kathy, for laying all of that out for us. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm a stalker. Sleep safe, everyone. Oh! Ah! Scary, Kathy!